Uh, it's just Jeremiah 17, 1 to 13. Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point, on the tablets of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. Even their children remember their altars and Asherah poles, beside the spreading trees and on the high hills. My mountain in the land and your wealth and all your treasures I will give away as plunder, together with your high places because of sin throughout your country. Through your own fault, you will lose the inheritance I gave you. I will enslave you to your enemies in a land you do not know, for you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Like a partridge that hatches eggs it did not lay are those who gain riches by unjust means. When their lives are half gone, their riches will desert them, and in the end they will prove to be fools. A glorious throne exalted from the king the beginning is the place of our sanctuary lord you are the hope of israel all who forsake you will be put to shame those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the lord the spring of living water Uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you again for your uh, magnificent word this morning, the words of life that we can come to each week and uh, yeah, encounter you in. Father, as we consider uh, perhaps a bit of a weightier passage this morning, I, yeah, I pray, Father, that uh, you would work in our hearts this morning, that you would uh, draw us near to you and, and show us in a greater way our need for you. Thank you that... Uh, yeah, even though we wrestle with some heavy things at times, Lord, that by doing that, Lord, we can grow in our uh, love for you and our relationship with you. So I just pray, Father, that as we can explore this passage, that, um, yeah, would you please re- reveal yourself to us? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll begin this morning uh, with a story. Uh, this particular event happened on the 20th of April 2010, so just over a decade ago. And it was out at sea on this particular day when this thing happened. Suddenly on the oil rig, a 70 meter geyser of water was gushing out of this oil rig. Not long after, this water turned into a mixture of drilling mud, uh, 
gas and, and water, this, this mix. And then quickly, it changed again into pure gas. And then unfortunately, that gas ignited. Within a moment, the oil rig was consumed with this big explosion of fire and flames on it. Unfortunately, at that time, 11 crew members on this oil rig lost their life because of this event. This massive explosion was, was horrific. The crew members who were survived that initial explosion tried their best to try and cut off the supply to this explosion, cut off the, the gas that's coming out. They had these safety measures in place that were supposed to be able to do that, these safety devices that should be able to cut off the flow. But unfortunately, all safety devices failed. 36 hours later, this oil rig slowly sank into the ocean of the Gulf of Mexico. Some of you may know this story. It's this deep water horizon oil rig uh, that capsized and... and, uh, and it's one of the biggest, if not, I think it is the biggest uh, oil spill in human history. It's a terrible situation. It's a terrible event that happened. And after this terrible situation, much litigation happened. Uh, there was a big investigation around why did this even come about? Why did this oil rig uh, go so wrong? Why did the explosion happen in the first place? And even after it happened, why did all the safety measures that were supposed to stop it fail? Who was to blame for this mess and who was going to clean it all up? These were really pressing questions that had to be answered, that people demanded answers for. Now, as we think about our passage this morning, that event that happened gives us a bit of a picture about what's going on in our passage. Because just like that catastrophe, in our passage, in Jeremiah, a bit of a catastrophe is about to occur, is in the midst of happening. In uh, chapters 2 to 25 in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is proclaiming divine judgment on the people of Israel. They were facing God's judgment for for their sin, for turning away from God. At this point of time in Israel's history, this is perhaps their darkest hour. And Jeremiah had the difficult task of proclaiming God's word faithfully to them at this time. Chapter 17, our chapter comes along in this story, these first 25 chapters or so. And it's almost like a bit of an interlude, a bit of an investigation, you could say, into what, what was actually happening. Why was Israel, why was God's people facing this terrible situation, this catastrophe? And so in our verses in chapter 17 that we've read, Jeremiah, he gets to the heart of the problem. Why did all these safety checks and balances fail? Why were they facing Such spiritual ruin. Well, Jeremiah shows us that the heart of the problem lies in the heart. And he does so by four metaphors or descriptions in our passage. So 
what I'd like to do this morning is basically work through these four metaphors or descriptions and see what each of them teach us about the human heart, our, our condition as humanity. Now, as I said, that is like we have to wrestle with some dark stuff this morning. It's, it's not, there is some positive things in there, but a lot of it is quite challenging. And so I, I warn you up front, we, we have to wrestle with the true nature of humanity, according to Jeremiah here. But I ask you to stick with me, because there really is light at the end of the tunnel. So let's dive straight into it. Let's look at this first metaphor that we encounter here. And the first one is in verse 1. There we find the metaphor of engraving. This picture, this ancient technology that existed in Jeremiah's day. They would often get a hard stone or a a hard rock or diamond or something and they would use that implement to, to engrave on objects, perhaps on stone or other hard materials. And what Jeremiah uses this metaphor for is to show that, uh, I guess, point to Israel's idol worship and how they had sin engraved on their hearts. I mean, in modern times, the technology certainly has had a bit of an upgrade. We don't quite do the things the same way. But I think the general principle is quite transferable. We understand the metaphor. We engrave things all the time. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, what does this picture teach us? What is Jeremiah trying to teach us here? What is God trying to teach us about the human heart? About sin in the heart? And what I think we could say, the first thing we learn here, is that sin is permanent. There's something about the enduring nature of sin in the human heart. Once it's engraved there, you just can't easily get rid of it. It's like that stain on that shirt that you have that you just can't rub off. Any attempt to remove this sin as well is equally futile and, and just doesn't work and, and is sinful actually as well. We see this when it has this reference to um, the engraved altars. The altars are engraved as well with sin. What's going on there? What does that mean? Well, again, this is a reference to the false idol worship that was happening at the time. The ceremonies and rituals that the people of Israel were conducting, thinking that that would deal with their sin, thinking that that would bring divine favor from false gods. They thought they could get themselves right, can deal with their sin. And as we think about that metaphor in our time today, and actually humanity throughout all ages, that is so true. It's so transferable. It's so applicable. No matter how much you and I may try, what we try and do in and of ourselves, we can't get rid of sin ourselves. Sin continues to rot away in the sinful heart. No amount of trying to be good enough or pursuing false religion will get us right with God. It's a problem that you and I can't fix. But not just that. What we learn here is that a sin-engraved heart is so steeped in sin, so used to sin, that it just becomes kind of like part of normal behavior. 
This is uh, quite evident when you see the reference there to children. So the children of Israel is said there to just remember growing up amongst all this false worship. These idols were just part of their life. Uh, with our In these COVID times, we certainly hear about the new normal, don't we? Apparently with COVID, we just got to get used to living a new norm. And spiritually speaking, that's kind of what's being said here. This is what sin does to the human heart. Sin just becomes so part of life that it's considered normal behavior. And, it's, and a heart like this considers sin to actually be good instead of evil. Appealing, attractive, rather than repulsive and repugnant. Uh, in our culture, one way that this stood out to me was, uh, I think it was last year or the year before, there was, a, there was a pride march in one of our capital cities over in the eastern states. And at this particular pride march, they invited a bunch of children to come along as well. And uh, this, this was despite the overly sexualized, explicit content that was at this pride march. And yet, and that's certainly all of that was not God-honoring. I remember one person, there's a recording of someone who phoned up the police and was trying to say, why are there children at this event? This is a situation, a a circumstance, an example of how our culture is trying to make, uh, I guess, the, the worship of sex and sexual identity as just what should be normal rather than following God's ways. Those children there would think that that's just how life should be. But for us as Christians, for you and I, this is a challenge for you and me too. The challenge to see sin for what it is. God is calling a people out of this world, away from sin. And yet sin in the heart is so engraved in our human nature that it just puts up a really big fight for us. So that's the first metaphor that we see there, this this imagery of engraving. And and as you'll see in our passage, uh, Jeremiah is using all these metaphors very poetically. And and it's actually a lot of, uh, it's similar, a little bit similar to say Proverbs where it's a lot of wisdom literature here. And so next he moves on to yet another metaphor, something that really sparks our uh, imagination. This powerful metaphor is found in verses 5 to 8. And what he does there is this comparison between a cursed person and a blessed person. And he uses uh, nature as a way of illustrating that. What Jeremiah shows us there is that a cursed person is someone who trusts in humanity rather than God. And such a person is equivalent with someone who turns their heart away from God. And so Jeremiah likens such a person to a small, insignificant and lonely desert bush. Uh, By nature, a little bush doesn't have deep roots, and so when the drought comes and the heat comes, it can easily just quickly shrivel up and die. The reference to the salt land there, it makes it more vivid. I mean, nothing, not many things grow well in salt. 
And so it's a lonely outcast in a barren land. In stark, stark contrast, a blessed person is said to be someone who trusts in the Lord. That person is described as a large and lush green tree that's planted near the water. In contrast to the bush, a tree has, has deep roots. And so when the drought comes, when the, when the heat comes, it can last. It can last the distance. It doesn't stop bearing fruit. It's not overly concerned with the challenges that it may face in its environment. It can handle it. I mean, once again, it's a striking picture that I think we can easily relate to. It's picking two things that we will know very well, a bush and a tree. Again, Jeremiah gets to the heart of the issue here. And what he shows is that it's all about the heart, a heart that trusts in God. And he does so by showing there's really two ways for us to live. A cursed way and a way of blessing. And I think the emphasis here in this metaphor really is around that human tendency to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. To believe deep down in yourself that you've got what it takes to live a good and prosperous life. But what a heart, what is, what's actually really happening in a heart like that is that we're displacing God as king. We're setting ourselves up as king over our life rather than the true king in heaven. It's a heart attitude that says, I'll just do it my way. I've got what it takes. But what Jeremiah is saying here is that such an attitude, such an approach in life is destined for ruin. When the challenges of life comes, a person like this finds that they don't have the resources to truly prosper. Instead, true strength comes True human flourishing comes when putting their trust in God. By giving God that central focus in your life. That's what real blessing is all about. Uh, For many people in our culture today, believing in God can seem pretty foolish. Perhaps it's even ridiculed and downplayed. Others, perhaps more open to the Christian faith or religion in general... Knowing that there's a higher power, that it seems very plausible and actually something that they probably believe in some ways, that there is a God somewhere out there. But such a person, if you would ask them and, and think about their life, it probably doesn't feature high on their radar. They may be open to considering Christianity, but it's not central to who they are as a person. But this metaphor is asking us the question saying, is God center of your life? Because that is the way of true blessing. So I asked you this morning, is God the center of your life this morning? How you live? What you're on about in this world? If you were to ask your closest Christian friend that same question, how would they answer? Honestly. Is God so precious to you this morning that the thought of not having him is just unbearable? That is the heart attitude that leads to true blessing. 
So that's our second metaphor. Two ways to live. The way of cursing, the way of blessing. Next we move on to our third metaphor to see what that metaphor has to teach us about human nature, about the human heart. And that can be found in verses 9 to 10. And just when we thought things couldn't get any worse, well, in some ways they do. Verse 9 comes along and it's perhaps the most shocking one of, and, and it's just the picture that's given here about human, the human heart. And it's one of the most, probably the one of the most famous verses in Jeremiah. Uh, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Uh, it's helpful for us just to step back for a minute and just think about that. I mean, really? The heart is deceitful above all things? It's so sick that it's just beyond cure? I mean, that's a really shocking picture. Uh, when you think about you know, deception and, and where you may encounter deception in this life, uh, a few things came to my mind. I thought about uh, the animal and insect world. I thought about how perhaps uh, you think of a, a leopard who is hunting its prey in the shadow, shadows of the tall grass and hiding to try and capture its prey. Or perhaps even the innocent glowworm who you know, we think is really cool, but you think about what is it actually doing? It's putting a little glow in the dark to allure its prey to come and chase the glow so it can capture it. I mean, the whole animal and insect world, is, is, it thrives on deception and trickery in a lot of ways. Or perhaps you might come across a, a magician who you know, pulls out a really f- fun card trick and, and tricks you with how they do that trick. Or maybe even an optical illusion that just plays with your, with your sight. What you're seeing is not what is actually there. I, they always get me. I can't ever get them. So deception, if you think about it, by nature, deception is misrepresenting the facts. It's giving the appearance of one thing when in reality something else is true. And above all these things, Jeremiah says that it's the human heart that is the most deceptive thing that exists. I mean, that's a big call. And yet he's saying that's what's true. In fact, the human heart is so deceptive that you could say that it can, it's capable of self-deception. It can deceive itself into thinking that it is without sin and undeserving of God's judgment, that it doesn't need God's forgiveness. Scripture elsewhere plainly states this. In 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 8, it says there, If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's something about the human heart that is deceptive. We can even deceive ourselves. And again, this is certainly true today. As we've already begun to discuss, our culture in so many ways is trying to fast fast turning darkness into light and calling it light. Sin is not uh, so much permissible, but almost encouraged and desirable in so many ways. And unfortunately, the church, Christians, are not free from this either. Christians are equally capable of trying to justify sin in their life. 
when we know deep down it's not pleasing to God. Maybe we can try and convince, I don't know if you ever kept, caught yourself thinking, ah, oh, it's just not that bad. I, or, or God will overlook that one sin. Or surely all the good that I do outweighs the bad. There's all types of ways that we might subtly or, or overtly try and justify sin. And yet for all this deception that exists in human nature, there is one being who remains undeceived. And that is God. In verse 10, it says that that God searches the heart. He searches the mind, examines the mind. God cannot be fooled. Before God, our hearts are laid bare by his piercing eye. He knows every detail about us and the sins that we've committed. I wonder if you've ever thought that you've got away with sin that you think you can hide it from God. Maybe we might think we can just get away with it. No one will catch us and find us out. (laughs) But God sees us. Our whole life is laid bare before him. We can't hide from him. And if that is you this morning, it's time to front up and acknowledge that and face him. And what this metaphor shows is not only is it deceptive, but we're, we're, we're sick. The human heart is said to be sick there, beyond cure. I mean, not only is the heart naturally sinful and unrepentant by nature, but actually it's in, incapable of repenting by itself. It's so far gone in sin that by itself it has no capacity to turn back to God. And this highlights the, the shocking uh, doctrine of total depravity. We are Human nature is stubborn in sin. So that's the first three metaphors that we've explored so far this morning and how Jeremiah is poetically describing human nature, our hearts. Uh, The fourth metaphor is found in verse 11 and there he brings us back to the animal world and he talks about this partridge, a bird. A bird there that gathers these foreign eggs that don't belong to it and hatches them. Uh, But once uh, this bird nurtures these eggs and and hatches them and they mature, these birds run off and and find out that, hey, this is not my real mother, I'm going somewhere else. And what Jeremiah does there is he likens such a, a bird to a person who gets rich at the expense of others. Such a person thinks that their actions have paid off. And indeed, in the short term, it it might actually pay off. They think that they're getting away with it. But in time, such a person finds that their actions begin to unravel. And actually, the word that's used here to describe them is that they end up being a fool. Someone who brings about their own ruin. Once again, this is, this is wisdom language here. We find the same language all through Proverbs, spoken of a fool who thinks that they're, they're making the best choice when actually they're not. The unique emphasis here seems to be around the selfishness of human nature, particularly at the expense of others. I mean, certainly our culture does exemplify this in some ways. I mean, you probably would have heard it before when it says, uh, we've heard it say, uh, look, make sure you look after number one. 
you do you. Follow your dreams and do whatever that makes you happy. There's a, there's a self-centeredness to, uh, I guess, the Western outlook on life. But interestingly, when we turn to the New Testament, Jesus just flips this on its head. In Mark eight thirty four to 35 Jesus says to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's a completely different way and approach to life. It says the way of true living is to die, die to self. As we consider the Christian life and in light of this metaphor, it's evident that God is calling Christians, his people, to live radically different lives. And there is something about the sinful human nature that finds this, we find this difficult to live out uh, consistently and fully. So I'm sure you agree with me as we've explored these four metaphors. They're a pretty dark picture. They paint a pretty solemn picture of human nature. It's all rather negative. So now that we've explored these four pictures or metaphors and seen how the heart is sick and in need of help, we've got to ask the question, what hope is there? What hope does our passage in the Bible give us to deal with this heart of ours? And as I said earlier, there really is hope and light at the end of the tunnel. And Jeremiah knows this, even at the end of our passage, he he speaks of God, uh, the hope of Israel. He knows that hope doesn't lie within humans, in in us, but lies in God. Uh, There he pictures God in in his heavenly throne, in heaven, his sanctuary, the place where his his, uh, presence is felt. And he says that is where our presence is. That's where we want to be, with God, communing with him. That's our true home if you believe in him and you are his people. He also has a description there of God as the fountain of living water and calling people not to forsake that living water. And so as you think about that this morning, what we understand is that the only way we can deal with our sinful hearts is to return back to that fountain of water to get life from God, from outside of ourselves. For God and his goodness to flow to us. So where do we get this flow? How does this source of life come to us? Well, Jeremiah answers that later in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 31, 31 to, uh, verse 31 to 34, there there's this amazing central promise of the Old Testament and in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, those verses say, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like a, the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. 
And listen to this. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. So, a promise of a new heart. God's word declares there that there was a promise of the Old Testament that God's people would be given a new heart. Be renewed from the inside out. And as we consider Jesus and the rest of the biblical story, this is fulfilled in him. For for any follower of Jesus and his gospel and the work that he did on the cross, all that secured a new heart for, for all believers that believe in him through the inworking power of the Spirit. Jesus fulfilled that promise in Jeremiah. And by grace, he saves us. This is why the gospel is so much good news for us. We see how dark our hearts really are. And it's when you face that, you realize you need God. And God says, I will give you my grace. I will renew you from the inside out. He is the living waters that we come to. In John 7, Jesus said in verse 37 to 39, he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, by whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus saying, come to me and I will give you life. I will be that fountain of life in you. I will make you alive where you have previously been dead in sin. Jesus says, don't remain with those sin engraved hearts. Don't reject my offer of salvation and grace. This is the only way of escaping the firestorm, the coming judgment, the catastrophe of divine judgment that hangs over humanity. There is no other safety measures that's going to work. Jesus is the only way to prevent a catastrophe. And all God asks of us is to repent and believe in him. To say, I can't do it, God. I need you. You are my hope. Will you renew me this day? Will you forgive me of my sins and wash me clean, whiter than snow? So I ask you, Christian, is this your story today? Is this the story of your life? Have you received this gracious gift from Jesus? Is that a treasure for you? Do you know how much of a good news that is, that your heart has been changed, that he is continuing to work in you by the power of his Holy Spirit? Have you this day cast your lot in with him? My prayer is that you have. Amen. Will you pray with me? Uh, Heavy Father, this passage has been heavy in a lot of ways. You've, uh, yeah, it is hard again in a lot of ways to consider 
the true nature of, of sin and how it pollutes our soul and all of our, our life. And Father, so often we confess that we are blind to our sin. We, we don't acknowledge it the way we should. And so I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would convict us and and reveal where we still have to to grow and change in our life. But Father, at the same time, we know that we can't do it that ourselves. And we pray that you would work through your Holy Spirit in us. We pray that this day we would know that life that you give to us once more and that we would go out of this place knowing that you give us a renewed heart and that your Spirit empowers us. Father, we do this not because we want to try harder in ourselves, but we know that uh, it's, yeah, it's your goodness to us and it's all for your glory, Lord. Father, we do it because we now love you, because you first loved us. And we uh, fill us with the joy of the gospel. Fill us again with the joy of what you've accomplished for us in your son, Jesus. And we thank you so much for the new life that you've given us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.